Welcome to Village Mentality, where melanated people are connected in spirit, love, and community. What's up, kings and queens? Beautiful people everywhere. It's your girl, C.K. McGee, and I am your host. What's up, beautiful people? How's everyone doing? I pray that you are all doing as well as you can be. Welcome to another episode of Village Mentality. Now, if you did not have a chance to hear last week's show, then I invite you to catch up with that and all past episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Breaker, and Radio Public. And every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, that is, you are more than welcome to join me here in the village as I talk about different topics that impact BIPOC communities. I'll encourage self-care practices that can help to rejuvenate your spirit and your soul so that you can continue to be the fantabulous kings and queens that you already are. As well as looking at all of those topics that are discussed through a mental health perspective. Now, without further ado, I believe that it's time for me to take my first walk of the evening to my musical jukebox. Now this song, Village, was the seventh studio album by this talented American singer and songwriter, and it was released on April 25th, 1979. Oh shoot, during the disco era on Casablanca, records. Now, this became the best-selling and most critically acclaimed album of her career, and it was also her final studio album for Casablanca Records. In 2003, Universal Music reissued this song. It was digitally remastered and expanded into a deluxe edition, and this album topped both the Billboard 200 and the Billboard R&B album chart for several weeks. She was also the first female artist to have two songs in the top three of the Billboard Hot 100 in June of 79. Now the song reached platinum and then double platinum status, honey, by the Recording Industry Association of America within just a week of its release. It is considered to be one of the greatest disco albums linked by Rolling Stone's list of women who rock the 50 greatest albums of all time at number 23. Dust off your platform shoes, grab your bell bottoms or your hip huggers, and let's do the bump. One of the greatest songs by one of the greatest to do it of all time. It's the queen of disco, the late Donna Summer with Bad Girls.
club isn't the best place to find a lover So the bar is where I go Me and my friends at the table doing shots Tripping fast and then we talk slow And we come over and start up a conversation with just me And trust me, I'll give it a chance Now take my hand, stop it, and the man on the jukebox And then we start to dance And now I'm singing like, girl, you know I want your love Your love was handmade for somebody like me Come on now, follow my lead I may be crazy, don't mind me Say, boy, let's not talk too much Grab on my waist and put that body on me Come on now, follow my lead Come, come on now, follow my lead mm -hmm. I'm in love with the shape of you We push and pull like a magnet do Although my heart is falling too I'm in love with your body And last night you were in my room Now my bed sheets smell like you Every day discovering something brand new well, I'm in love with your body oh, 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 oh. I'm in love with your body oh, 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 oh. Well, I'm in love with your body oh, 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 oh. I'm in love with your body Every day discovering something brand new I'm in love with the shape of you When we came we let the story begin We're going out on our first date But you and me are thrifty So go all you can eat Fill up your bag and I fill up the plate We talk for hours and hours About the sweet and the sour And how your family's doing okay And leaving, getting a taxi Kissing the backseat Tell the driver, make the radio play And I'm singing like Girl, you know I want your love Your love was handmade for somebody like me Come on now, follow my lead I may be crazy, don't mind me Say, boy, let's not talk too much Grab on my waist and put that body on me Come on now, follow my lead Come, come on now, follow my lead mm -hmm. I'm in love with the shape of you We push and pull like a magnet do Although my heart is falling too I'm in love with your body Last night you were in my room Now my bed sheets smell like you Every day discovering something brand new well, I'm in love with your body oh, 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 oh. I'm in love with your body oh, 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 oh. I'm in love with your body oh, 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 oh. I'm in love with your body Every day discovering something brand new I'm in love with the shape of you Come on, be my baby, come on 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 I'm in love with the shape of you Push and pull like a magnet Although my heart is falling too I'm in love with your body Last night you were in my room Now my bed sheets smell like you Every day discovering something brand new I'm in love with your body
That was English singer, songwriter, Ed Sheeran with The Shape of You. Y'all like that? I was jamming. And that was released on January 6, 2017 as one of the double lead singles from his third studio album. The dance hall infused pop song was written by Ed Sheeran, Steve Mack and Johnny McDade. Now, due to its interpolation of No Scrubs, which was a song by TLC, Candy Burris, Mika Tiny Cottle, and Kevin Shakespeare Briggs are also credited as writers. So Village, if you're anything like me, I needed to know what interpolation meant. And so I looked up the only definition that I could find. Well, I shouldn't say that I could find, but I looked up the definition. And I wanted to know the difference actually between interpolation and sampling, right? So sampling takes a snippet of an original song that has been copied and pasted into an entirely new piece, right? While interpolation is when a recording is recreated note for note and reflects the underlying composition. So it became the best performing song of 2017. Now, the next time that you hear that song, sing the chorus to TLC Scrubs instead and see if it works and remember where you heard it first. Well, Village, you know me. I like to take a little bit of time to talk about some things, whether it be about current events, entertainment, or something that is just on my mind. So why don't we get into my segment called Let's Talk About It. Before I speak with you, Village, about the latest with Julius Jones, I would like to acknowledge a big oopsie that I made while talking about his case last week. First, I need you all to please understand, I've been following his case for over a year now, and I was made aware of it through change.org. And for those of you who, who may not know, change.org brings up a lot of cases locally, nationally, internationally, and it's an opportunity to, you know, um, sign um, uh, petitions, uh, you know, donations in order to keep the organization running. But a lot of the cases, you know, that I talk about on the show actually come into my purview because of, you know, my um, membership with this organization. And so that's where I first heard of it. And in season one, my then co-host and I talked about this case in great length. We too, like others, had watched a documentary called The Last Defense, and it discussed the case. And that, of course, was in addition to what I had read about the case as well. But I'd like to say this too, and, you know, sort of as my mother would say it, in my past life, <laughs> I was aspiring to be an attorney. And that coupled with the fact that I'm already a very critical and analytical thinker was the reason, besides the injustice of it all, 
that I was attracted to this and many other cases that I will talk to you about over time. Now, while I truly believe that I would have been an excellent attorney, I just woke up one morning and realized that ultimately it would not make me happy. And so life has offered me a different path in accordance with my purpose, right? Now, last week where my mind was at, time was running out for Julius. I felt what was going on with this man that I've never met before in my life and I've only seen him in photographs and videotape, reading transcripts and all this other kind of stuff. I felt him like he was in my life for real, okay? I feel things very deeply like a blessing and a curse, but I do. I feel things very deeply. So I was scared, honestly, scared and extremely emotional about the thought that he was scheduled to die last Thursday at 4 p.m. Central, which would mean 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time where I'm here, you know, where I am here in New York. So when I talked about the case, I completely went blank. And I misrepresented some information, but it wasn't on purpose. Because as I said, I've spoken about the case in great length before. So obviously that wasn't the case, right? But I like to self-correct wherever I can. And when I heard the playback of the show, I was like, oh no. So I always have to come back and fix what I did wrong. So that's what I'm doing. So I'm gonna correct my earlier statement when I said, that there was no evidence against him because there was evidence against him. There was. But as with many things in this case, that evidence was questionable at best. That was the problem throughout the case's entirety, right? But now, the assailant, according to Mr. Paul Howell's sister, Paul Howell was the victim, and his sister was the sole eyewitness to this tragic murder that took place, right? Um, she stated that the person who killed her brother in the driveway of their parents' home was wearing a cap. And she noted particularly that there was hair coming out of these sides of the cap, right? Well, it just so happened, and, you know, just sort of like coincidentally, it just so happened that a week before that, Julius Jones had gotten a haircut. And if you've seen pictures of him, and I've seen pictures of him since like 1999 on up, he always wears his hair close. He always wears his hair close. Now, kings out there, I think you understand what I mean. If you are that brother that goes to the shop, barbershop every two weeks, or how often you go to get your edge up, or you get your hair cut, or whatever, you know good and doggone well that in one week, your hair does not grow that fast that it's gonna be hanging out the edges of the cap, okay? Secondly, the person was said to have had uh, a, a red bandana around their mouth, like a mask, right? And so <clears throat> in stating that the red bandana was there covering the face of the assailant, when they found the murder weapon that was used that evening, wrapped in that red bandana in Julius Jones' closet. It was like, ding, 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 ding. Tell them what they want, Bob, okay? It was like, well, I mean, hey, what else What else do we have to do? Here's the murder weapon, right? <clears throat> However, Christopher Jordan, you know, the man that claimed he was just the getaway driver who turned out to be the star's witness against Julius Jones, Ryan, did anybody tell you that he spent the night 
he spent the night at Julius's house? Hmm. So you mean to tell me like when I like got up to go and use the restroom or maybe I went to the kitchen to get a snack or what have you, you perhaps might have saw that as an opportunity for you to place the gun that you used to kill the person, wrap it up in the bandana that you were identified as wearing and put it in my closet so they could find it. Is that what you're saying? Okay. So again, these things are all questionable things. There's no slam dunk here about anything. There's no slam dunk, okay? For you to put somebody in jail, much less to put them on death row and then ultimately want to kill them. Right? So he spent the night there. And conveniently, the gun was found in Julius's closet. Too many questions, too many doubts, too much uncertainty, right? If you're going to incarcerate or sentence someone to death, then don't you think that we need to be damn sure of that person's guilt before doing so? That was why. That was why, ladies and gentlemen, his case received so much attention. And quite frankly, when it comes to African-American men in this country in particular, this is far too often their fate. And we just can't have it. You heard me? So, I mean, it's great news that Julius did not die by execution last week. I'm so grateful that that, you know, didn't happen because I was bawling my eyes out again, like I know the dude personally, but that's how much I felt this case. I was bawling my eyes out when his sisters talked about, you know, the last visit that uh, she and and, and their family had with him that Wednesday. and you know his last words to them at that time was listen you know what hey basically if it doesn't work out for me okay and they proceed with this uh, execution i just need you guys to continue fighting and fight for others who are in the same position that i'm in and there are plenty of people who are in the position that julius jones was in I've spoken to you all about Purvis Payne and I'll be talking to you about him again. He's in Tennessee. So there's plenty, there's a plethora of people who are in that position. Otherwise, why does the Innocence Project exist? You know what I'm saying? So those were his words to them. And hearing that, I'm just like, oh my God. I was very emotional, folks, last week for sure, right? But if you're gonna put somebody in jail, if you're gonna put them on death row, If you're going to put them to death, at least be certain of everything. And then, you know, we're not even talking about all the other things, you know, the alleged racist comment by one of the jurors talking about take the N-word out back behind the court and just shoot them. Uh, Or, you know, the the, um, prosecutorial misconduct that was also alleged to have happened. That's not what's supposed to be happening in a case. And if you have solid evidence and proof, then you should try the case based on solid evidence and proof, especially in this situation. So yeah, great. He did not die by execution last week, but governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, he not only commuted his sentence to life in prison, but he went against the recommendation of the parole board and he changed it to life in prison without parole. And as a condition, he's never, Julius that is, he's never to seek any further commutation or parole of any kind so that he essentially still will just die in jail anyway. Okay? Now, here's why that's not good, ladies and gentlemen. 
Because if he's not guilty, he should not even be there in the first place. Aha, aha. Therein lies the problem, right? Now, there's an inmate right now who is currently serving a 50-year sentence for aggravated robbery in Arkansas that was a former cellmate with Christopher Jordan. And last year, in a series of letters and videos between Roderick Wesley and Julius Jones' attorneys, stated that Christopher Jordan told him that he killed Paul Howell and set Julius Jones up to take the fall. Now, also out there is the question as to whether or not the governor actually has the power to sort of like go against what the parole board recommended. So, you know, I'm just going to definitely be monitoring, you know, this. And um, we will just have to see what happens next. Well, kings and queens, it's been almost a week since the acquittal in a very polarizing case in Wisconsin, and might I say across the country, of Kyle Rittenhouse slapped us all smack dab in the face, reminding us that there is still a lot of work to do when it comes to justice for all. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with this case, where have you been? And for the rest of us, I'm going to say this as nicely as I possibly can, okay? Here goes. How unfortunate it is to live in such a hypocritical society that continues to perpetuate the idea that what's good for the goose is definitely not good for the gander. Because if the gander had done exactly the same thing that the goose did, there probably would never have even been a trial. You feel me? I knew right off the grip, right out the gate. I just, I just looked at the judge that presided over the case and I thought, we are in trouble. We are in trouble. And here's the thing, the victims, the ones that were actually killed by Kyle Rittenhouse, they weren't even black but that doesn't matter. They were human beings. You understand? That's how we do things. Wrong is wrong is wrong is wrong. It doesn't matter what color you are. Your life matters no matter where you live, no matter what color you are, your gender, your sexual preference. It matters. It all matters. See? They just happened to be at a rally, Black Lives Matter protest, because of what happened to our brother James, excuse me, Jacob, the day before. Why did I say James? I have no idea. But Jacob Blake, who's still paralyzed from the waist down, right? Because of that, people came out and they were exercising their constitutional rights, supposedly. I mean, that's what they say. Freedom to assemble peaceably, you know, all that jazz. And here this dude comes, imported from Chicago by his mother, to come to protect property that nobody invited him to do any such thing. I mean, really? So if the gander had done the same thing as the goose, 
there probably would not have even been a trial. I just wanted to say that again, okay? But I knew, I saw that judge and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, it's gonna be a problem. And a problem it was. One of the first things that he did was he dismissed the weapons charge. Now, I do have to say that on the surface, you're like, oh my gosh, great. He drops the weapons charge, it just, you know, tears away at the very foundation of the case. But, ladies and gentlemen, we have to read the fine print, okay? And there actually is a reason why those weapons charges were dismissed, right? Because what they were talking about in terms of, you know, minors with guns and all of that, all right, it only pertains to short-barreled guns, short barrel gun. If he had had a sawed off shotgun, gotcha, he'd got him. Oh yeah, okay? But it wasn't a sawed off shotgun, okay? The barrel of the gun was long enough. Them darn loopholes, right? I'm telling you, you gotta read that fine print, beautiful people. Now, there are a number of things that we don't allow young people to do who are under the age of of 18, you know? There's reasons for that. They're not quite mature to make those, you know, decisions, you know, the judgment, their judgment. It's not perfected at the age of 16 or 17, you know? Maybe a little bit later on down the road, perhaps, you start to see things a little bit differently and they can make better, well-informed decisions, right? So, but we've seen that, you know, what that looks like in Kenosha, right? Such a tragic outcome. Two people lost their lives and the person responsible for it is completely free to be lauded as a hero. Yeah, they're rad- They're like ready to give him a ticker tape parade, high five and all that. He's a hero. While the families of those who were killed by him are gonna live heartbroken the rest of their lives. I thought all lives mattered. So there's also another trial that's going on and each side just gave their closing arguments. Now the three men that have been charged for the murder of Ahmad Aubrey have been standing trial in Brunswick, Georgia. Travis McMichael, his father Gregory and their neighbor, William Roddy Bryan. And each defendant has their own attorney which made closing arguments very long. And I wondered, is the jury taking notes? Because there are a lot of things to consider in this case, you know? And besides murder, they're actually charged with other crime. I wanna tell y'all, I'm not certain if you've had an opportunity to see any bit of this case, any part of the case. I truthfully didn't get a chance to see the whole case because I've been doing other things, but I did get a chance to focus in on those closing arguments. And Linda Donakowski, the prosecuting attorney, she almost made me wanna reconsider law school because she was outstanding, okay? She took that case apart and she, I mean, she disassembled it and reconstructed it so that you can understand why those three men were brought up on the charges that they were brought up on. She didn't leave anything to question. 
And, you know, that was her closing argument, but she came back still with a two hour rebuttal after all three defense attorneys, you know, came and said their piece. And a lot of people have been going kind of back and forth with whether or not she really should have focused on race. And they said something that was really key. And I, I, I really can respect it. Like you have to know your audience. People say that in everyday language, right? You have to know your audience. You have to know who you're talking to. And she understands that in Brunswick, Georgia, it is more prudent for her to focus on the facts of the case, right? So I'm just saying she did an outstanding job. The case is now in the jury's hands. And, and you know, hopefully they'll be able to take the time to really sort through things. I think that it was very clearly explained what things are, they have the law, so forth and so on. I mean, Ahmad's death has been likened by family and civil rights activists um, you know, to a modern day lynching. So we've had some time, you know, this is even, you know, past, you know, George Floyd and everything that that evoked last summer across the globe. And so now we're reckoning with Ahmad. And I really wish that this was happening with Breonna Taylor as well. And everybody else that's, you know, been uh, put in a situation that unfortunately no longer have the voice to speak about the experience that they've had. But we who've been left here to see the aftermath have been traumatized by all of these situations as they have occurred. You know, now, if they are convicted, they all face up to life in prison. So, of course, I'll be monitoring that case, too. Hey, beautiful people. You know, as a new mental health advocate, it is so exciting to know that there are certain opportunities that are available to me so that I can have a better idea about the things that are going on in the mental health community. Last week, I participated in a very informative virtual conference with NAMI. Some people say NAMI, but I like NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And the name of the event was called Hashtag Reimagine Crisis. I believe that I have a responsibility as an advocate to bring awareness to the village concerning some big things that are going on across the country. Hashtag let's talk about it, right? Now, suicide prevention is a major objective for all mental health professionals currently. We have the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is a 10-digit number, 1-800-275-8255, right? It's available 24-7. Well, in July of 2022, 988 will be, will be implemented as the new three-digit code connected directly to the Lifeline. So you no longer have to dial that 10-digit number. Yeah. Yes, yes, this is an exciting new way to providing mental health care to those who are in crisis. Hashtag you are not alone, right? Now, much like the system of 911, which was set up to connect us with police, fire, and ambulatory services, 988 will allow you to be connected to crisis call centers, mobile crisis teams, and resource stabilization centers that will be set up 
provide wraparound support to the person who is in crisis and their families. And I got to tell you, this would have been so awesome a support system to have had available when I was in the worst part of my mental health struggles, right? This would have been so cool to have, but it shows the progress of like the last 20 years or so. And I'm just so excited by it. Now, there is different legislation throughout the country as each state works out the details as to how they're going to accommodate this system. And, you know, one of the things I should just let you guys know that they're looking at is how exactly is 988 going to be funded? First of all, did you know that before 1966, there wasn't even any such thing as 911? I'll let that marinate with you for a second. Before 1966, there was no 911. Huh? So what do people do? And that was one of the models that they talked about in terms of, you know, the importance of having this three-digit number for those who are in mental health crisis, right? Uh, 911 was set up so that you had a direct link to police, to fire, and to the ambulance. Before that, you were pretty much looking in your phone book for the numbers right now if it's an emergency do you really have time to to do that and that's like our physical health so now we're really wanting to focus on our mental health and somebody who is in crisis especially if they're experiencing psychosis we need to be able to have a mental health crisis response that is proportional to what's going on with the person in crisis you understand so the benefits of this mental health crisis response is that it creates more opportunity for mental health professionals, along with peer specialists, be the first responders. Yes, taking away the criminalization one may experience because of certain behavior during a crisis. If someone's experiencing psychosis, they may not have realized they just threatened their mother that they were going to kill her or that they're holding this, they're brandishing some kind of a weapon. Um, police get on the scene, all they see is the danger because what is their priority? What is their, their main responsibility as police? Well, for most of them, it is to serve and protect the community. So when they see a threat, what do they wanna do? Get rid of the threat, right? Because of how they see it, because that is their perspective, we understand where they're coming from, but it's not the best way to deal with the person who is separate, excuse me, who's suffering from a condition right now or, or a state that they're in right now that they can be um, talked to and handled in such a way so that they don't end up dead. That's what people have been talking about for the longest time, okay? That's what people have been talking about. So we want to take away the criminalization. We want, we don't want people to be handcuffed and put in a police car because they're having a, 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 a crisis, right? Or, or to have the police approach you because we're having a crisis. It's very nerve wracking and a person in that state may not understand what's going on. They may make the wrong move, say the wrong thing, and then what? You can't take it back, you know? You can't take it back. It also prevents unnecessary lengthy visits to the emergency department or ER. And 
it directs services to rehabilis- uh, rehabilitation centers. I'm, I'm sorry, resource centers or stabilization centers, right? So, all right, so somebody's in crisis, um, you know, call would come through to the crisis call center. Uh, that person is a trained mental health professional who, according to what we've been told, is that they are the ones that are going to take the assessment of the situation of the individual. And depending on what your state does, as far as like, you know, financing this 988 system and all of the resources available, um, they might send out, they might dispatch a mobile uh, crisis team that would consist of a mental health professional accompanied by a peer specialist, somebody who might be able to, um, you know, speak to a client in a way that will make them feel at ease, comfortable. You know, we talk about cultural competence, talk about cultural humility. In this instance, having a peer specialist, somebody that looks like you, that maybe talks like you, that understands your language, understands your feelings, can be another way to de-escalate a situation, right? So they'll go to the scene and they will further continue to see what's going on and how they can help. And they'll be able to figure out for themselves perhaps what it is that this individual may need. Have they done some kind of harm to themselves already that would require them to go to the ER where they have to be treated physically for wounds? Or are they still in a state where perhaps it's just, um, you know, something uh, in the nature of a suicidal ideation? They're talking about harming themselves, but they haven't necessarily done anything. Maybe it's to find out what has brought these feelings on and how we can help. So the, the, the resource, the Stabilization Center, is a place that is not cold and barren and stagnant like an emergency room, but a little bit more comfortable that offers a little bit more compassion and care so that when that person is being spoken to by whomever, whether it's a social worker or what have you, then it can be ascertained as to what kind of resources and services they may be in need of. So instead of being at the ER for hour upon hour upon hour, Okay, and and they're already a place that's overwhelmed, especially now because we're still in the midst of the pandemic. You now have a a location for individuals that need this specialized attention, right? And of course, like I said, the mobile crisis team, they're a part of this whole configuration, all right? So states are figuring out what they can do. Now, a lot of people don't realize, and I didn't either until I heard it in this uh, conference, you're currently already paying a fee for 9-11 services. They say it's on your telephone bill, right? If you have a landline, uh, perhaps on your mobile bill. And so they're thinking about, and they have proposed that 988, 988 be set up the same way, that it be a fee that you pay on your bill. And they looked at it that way because they wanna find a way to sustain it over time without having to worry about whether or not the government after like three years, four years is gonna continue funding it or cutting back or what have you. This needs to be sustainable. It needs to be permanently put in place and it needs to quite frankly be secure. And so that's what they're 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 thinking about how we can how we can do this. So 
The benefits of this mental health crisis response is that it creates more opportunity for mental health professionals along with peer specialists to be the first responders. I just had to go back to that again because it's really, really, really important to understand that. They wanna take away the criminalization. They wanna keep people from being kept in ERs for hours upon hours. And it is exciting. It's exciting. It's exciting. So I know that they need to figure out how they're gonna pay for it. And you know, this is supposed to go um, online in July of next year. And you know, in certain parts of the country, there have been surveys that have gone out inquiring as to whether or not people would be willing to pay the fee for the services. Um, because it is crucial for us to have a mental health crisis response that takes care of everyone involved. And they believe that it may be their best way to sustain the program instead of always having to worry about the funding. And when it comes to mental health, that's what you're always worried about. The funding, the cutbacks, what they're going to pull from. It's too important a situation for, for us to have to be concerned about that. So as more details become available, Village, I will be sure to hook you up with all the information. Here's to brighter days. Hey, Village, quick correction here. The Suicide Prevention Lifeline, that number is 1-800-273-8255. Again, it's 1-800-273-8255. What's important to know is that the lifeline is free, it's confidential, and it is always available, right? So if you need to get help for a loved one, for a friend, or for yourself, you can call 1-800-273-8255, all right? And community crisis centers answer those lifelong lifeline calls, all right? Just wanted to make sure to clarify that number for you all. Here's to brighter days. Now in 1988, this American quintet released their first single from their fifth studio album, Heartbreak. The song became the biggest hit from the aforementioned album, reaching the top 10 of the US Billboard Hot 100, peaking at number seven. And it reached the second position on the Hot Black Singles Chart. Its chart performance and well-received music video garnered the quintet their first nomination for Best R&B Performance by a duo or group with vocals at the 31st Grammy Awards in February of 1989. The song and video is also notable for the introduction of a fellow R&B singer by the name of Johnny Gill. Now, he of course came on board after Bobby Brown's departure. Now, did you all catch the American Music Awards on Sunday night? The best part of it, you know, well, I mean, Cardi B was hosting. I didn't understand a lot of what she was saying half the time, but she was hosting. But it was the battle between the Boston boy bands, New Edition, and New Kids on the Block. It was everything. And it was the first time that both groups 
ever appeared on stage together. Now, there have been members of New Edition like BBD or Johnny Gill and the New Kids. Um, you know, they opened up for Bobby Brown once. So in that way, they have. But as New Edition and as New Kids on the Block, they have never been on the stage together. So Donnie Wahlberg, which for all you blockheads out there, and if there are any Blue Bloods fans, which I am both, he said that he and his band members were super excited when they heard about the battle because they always looked up to New Edition and saw them as heroes for giving them some other vision of what a kid from Boston can do rather than what was predestined. <laughs> well. Here's new edition with If It Isn't Love. And when we come back, I will get into today's topic.
Okay, kings and queens. Now today's topic is about is about implicit and explicit bias. Um, you know, racial disparities in our country are the direct result of hundreds of years of systemic racism and policy. Systemic racism along with implicit bias creates a cycle that propels white people to success and keeps black people behind. Those with privilege must understand their place in this vicious cycle. So for those who have been demanding change for decades, we ask that those with privilege take the time to reflect. I love that word, reflect, reflection, reflecting on their lives, right? If more people would just reflect, ah, how can you use your power to create a more equitable world? Think about that. What can you do to change it? Question is, if you are able to see that you may be a part of the problem, are you also willing to be a part of the solution? I believe that it's important to discuss things like this because as people of color, we are directly impacted in a lot of ways. Important to remember as well that we too could have bias towards others. And it's just as important that we check that too. You dig? Now, what is implicit bias? Okay, well, implicit bias is how people unconsciously assign stereotypes toward others. This includes the harmful stereotypes that white people learn to assign to the BIPOC community, Black and Indigenous and people of color. That's what that stands for. Now, implicit bias is active when people interact with peers at work, when they pass shoppers in a grocery store, and when we see groups of people on the street. Even when people do their best to treat others with respect and compassion, they may unknowingly react with implicit bias. This can be harmful to those around them. You know, like maybe an example of that, just to kind of give you an idea is, can I touch your hair? You know, no, you can't. Okay. Now, because implicit bias is a process of thinking, it is more difficult to call out and address than overt, you know, obvious racism, right? Now, in talking about implicit bias, we have to also talk about systemic racism. Remember, last week I talked to you about the difference between systematic racism and systemic racism. So systemic racism, also known as structural racism or institutional racism, refers to systems and policies that harm the health and livelihood of BIPOC. These systems include housing, food access, education, incarceration, workplaces, and more. Systemic racism was designed to propel white people to succeed and make it harder for BIPOC to succeed. Now these systems continue to exist today due to the implicit bias of those who work in and benefit from these systems. So how do implicit bias and systemic racism work together. Well, because implicit bias feeds into systems like incarceration, housing, and healthcare, these symptoms, excuse me, systems continue to flourish while racial disparities grow. And as racial disparities grow, so does implicit bias and stereotypes against BIPOC. 
creating a harmful cycle. Okay. So for example, um, when using a similar resume, job seekers with black sounding names, we talked about this last week too, received 50% fewer callbacks than job seekers with white sounding names. Here we can see that implicit bias clearly impacts the hiring process. And when black people are given few opportunities, it makes it that much harder for them to succeed. Roadblocks, obstacles, difficulties in doing something that everybody should have the right to do, earn money and you know support themselves and their families, right? Healthcare workers have implicit biases like everyone else. And this can be seen in the type of care patients receive. Now, the National Academy of Medicine found that racial and ethnic minorities receive lower quality health care than white people, even when assurance, insurance status, income, age, and severity of conditions are comparable. So, you know, <clears throat> far too often, the argument might be, oh, well, you know, they don't have the, 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 you know, the insurance, that's why. So, you know, without having the insurance, that must mean that they don't have, you know, uh, accessibility to the care. No, no, no. Even when we do have top-notch insurance, still being Black is the reason that we're treated less than. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Why should I? You're not sugarcoating the treatment. So, whether or not they're earning the same amount, they're the same age, they're still not getting the same care. And this systemic racism is life-threatening. More people die from cancer, heart disease, and diabetes in the United States solely because of their race or ethnicity, not because of lack of access to healthcare. Now, Generations of housing policies like redlining and racial covenants forced BIPOC families into less desirable neighborhoods and it banned them from more desirable neighborhoods that were designated for white families. Now the thinking behind this racist act was based on the idea that neighborhoods would be stronger if they were segregated and that white families deserve to live in better neighborhoods. To this day, we see the same segregation with BIPOC families in low-income areas and white families in high-income areas. And because lower-income neighborhoods are higher in crime, have less availability to fresh foods and poor quality education for their children, housing has a significant impact to numerous aspects related to one's health and livelihood. Like it only stands to reason, right? That's what they're saying. Now let's talk a little bit about explicit bias. What is it? Well, according to the Perception Institute, explicit bias refers to the attitudes and beliefs we have about a person or group on a conscious level. Much of the time, these biases and their expression arise as the direct result of a perceived threat. When people feel threatened, they are more likely to draw group boundaries to distinguish themselves from others. So why is this important to know? Well, people are more likely to express their explicit biases when they perceive an individual or group to be a threat to their well-being, right? 
Research has shown that white people are more likely to express anti-Muslim prejudice when they perceive national security to be at risk. They express more negative attitudes towards Asian Americans when they perceive an economic threat. And lately we've seen also a heightened threat level for Asian Americans with regard to the pandemic. And that's not just been by white people, it's been by us too, other people of color who are drinking the Kool-Aid. We gotta call it out, people. We all have to be responsible for our actions. It hasn't been right. It hasn't been right. So it can be very dangerous for people when you have that bias. And, you know, like when you see an African, uh, an African-American man, right? Walking down the sidewalk. White people are more likely to clutch their, clutch their purse. White females clutch their purse, you know, and cross over to the other side. All of that stuff is explicit bias. Now, I mean, that wasn't something they said. I just added that. Just, you know, we experienced that. Now, when people perceive their biases to be valid, they're more likely to justify unfair treatment or even violence. This unfair treatment can have long-term negative impacts on its victim's physical and what? Mental health. Ding, ding, ding. I've been saying this to you guys, all right? All of these things that I talk about week in and week out can wear on your mental health if you're not aware of the effect that it can have, then that means you're not putting into practice those things that can counter the effects of it. And as people of color who have been oppressed, who've been discriminated against, who have been treated like we're less than in every aspect of our lives, especially when you're talking about system, systemic racism, is it a wonder that we could be depressed? or that we might have a break from time to time, or that we might feel anxious. I'm not here to label you. That's not what I'm here to do. But if you are someone who is experiencing any kind of mental health struggle, I want you to know that it is just as valid even if you haven't been clinically diagnosed, or even if you do not have chemical imbalance, life, circumstances, consequences, situations can also have an impact on your mental health, just like poor eating has an impact on your physical health. It's the same thing, but we've been so under the heavy weight of stigma, we haven't been allowed or allowed ourselves to see that. And I'm here to destigmatize mental illness. So that's why I want to make sure you understand the connection. Now, what can be done about it? Expressions of explicit bias, you know, which is like discrimination, hate speech, etc. It occurs as a result of deliberate thought. Thus, they can be consciously regulated. So they say, right? People are more motivated to control their biases if they um, or if they're in a, a place where social norms are in place that dictate prejudice is not socially acceptable, right? As we start forming our biases at an early age, it's important that reinforce norms, we reinforce norms at, at home, schools, and in the media, right? That promote respect for one's own and other groups. So I've made mention on here plenty of times, right? Parents. 
parents, 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 you are the first teachers that your uh, children interact with. You're the ones to set the tone, you know, for how your child goes out into the world, right? Um, please and thank you. Hello when they enter a room. Respecting elders, um, being polite, being mannerable, um, understanding that, you know, there are differences and they may have friends from different backgrounds, you know, cultures, races, so forth and so on. And to learn to respect those differences uh, and, and to be proud of what makes them unique, what makes them different. You know what I'm saying? So the first lesson they get um, for that behavior comes from home. I used to have discussions with my mom from time to time. And I used to hear my grandmother, um, you know, earlier in my life. Every time somebody saw a, a kid that was misbehaving, a kid that was doing something wrong. Oh, that kid. Oh my goodness, that kid, that kid. And I'd be like, uh-uh, no, no, mm -mm. It's not the kid. It's the parents. Parents. The parents haven't stopped that. The parents haven't taught them to do it differently. It's the parents. Don't blame it on the kids. The parents. And then you can't start, you know, wanting to parent when the child is 16, 17, 18 years old. Well, now everything that they haven't been taught, <laughs> everything that you haven't instilled in them, it's kind of too late now because they've had an opportunity to absorb everything else around them. And whomever it is that's around them and whatever lessons they learned and didn't learn, your child's going to pick up. So when you have the opportunity, which is like now, if your kids are young, take that opportunity and teach them how to be well-rounded, happy individuals in this world that can be really cold and, and really polarizing and divisive, especially now, but to be able to stand in their truth and understand who they are and what they're all about and to be accepting and loving of others, regardless of what the color of their skin is or anything else that may make them unique to them. You understand? Because it's a whole lot better when you can be in the company of those who are different from you, who experience different things, huh? It's much more interesting to be with people who are different than, oh yeah, oh, what, what do you have for lunch? Oh, you have tuna on white bread too? Yeah, me too. But that person that comes in, <laughs> that person that comes in and has <laughs> a roast beef sandwich on wheat bread with lettuce and tomato, you're like, yo, that looks real good, doesn't it? I'm just saying, we have to start looking at stuff like that, okay? Now, um, we have to understand that um, we need to find a common group identity, you know? You know that saying, all for one and one for all? Like, um, we're all Americans, right? That way, we, we have this, like, perception that we're, like, all in this together, we want to look more for stuff like that than the stuff that tears us apart. It can help to reduce interracial tensions that may arise between majority and minority ethnic groups in the U.S. Also, when conducted under the right conditions, studies show that intergroup contact between people of different races can increase trust and reduce the anxiety that underlies the bias. Because guess what, you know, I think bias is like a fear, even though it's not called a phobia, but I feel like it's like a fear. And what do we fear? We fear the unknown, or we can fear the stories 
that are consumed by misinformation about an individual or a group of people. And until we learn the truth for ourselves, you see what I'm saying? We're going to continue to believe that wrong account that we've been given. So yeah, let's step outside ourselves. There are things that we can do to change this if we really wanted to. Now, our biases and the systems around us create a world where a barrier to success is the color of one's skin. And we're not just sitting around saying, oh my God, I'm black, so therefore I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do this, okay? I just can't do it, I'm black. They're never gonna give me a chance. We're not saying that because if that was the case, then we wouldn't even be where we are today. But we are saying that we recognize that it hasn't been made easy and it hasn't been made easy on purpose and it hasn't been made easy on purpose because of the color of our skin. That right there should never be. It should be a place where everybody has a level playing field and has access to the same opportunities, right? That's what it should be. That's what we're talking about. That's what we would like to get to, right? And although that idea is shameful to most of us that the barrier is the color of our skin, we play a part in the, uh, uh, in the um, continuation of this reality. We do, we play a part, okay? We may be quick to call out overt racism, but it's implicit or indirect racism that we often fail to call out. So yeah, it's easy, you know, for the obvious, but what about the, the not so obvious, but that you know is situation? Like for instance, I'll just give you an example. I think I told this story before, but if not, it's okay. Quickly, I worked at a hotel in Boston uh, I worked at several hotels in Boston, so I worked at a hotel in Boston, and they were discriminate. They were discriminating against me. It was about my hair, okay. And now we all know about the Crown Act and everything like that, right? Um, I didn't make a big deal about it. Like I should have, I should have complained about it. I should have gone to someone and said something about it, because it was discrimination. What in the world does the way I'm wearing my hair have to do? with the way that I do my job, right? I came highly recommended from where I came from. I had been in a managerial position from where I came from. My hair was beautiful. As a matter of fact, it was fabulous, if I must say so myself. So what does, whether I have it braided or whatever, what does it have to do with it? Especially when I'm in the back of the house, I'm not even at the front desk. I'm in like the reservation center. Why are you giving me a hard time? But I didn't speak up about it, but if that person, and actually <laughs> it happened to where I was on a job and I was called the N-word, now I did go and check that dude and he was consequently fired. True story. So that's what they're talking about when they say about us calling it out or not calling it out. In obvious cases we do, but when it's not so obvious, we do not. And it is implicit bias that allows these systems to continue without any meaningful change because we didn't speak about it. So it just continues on. And this kind of racism has arguably greater impacts on the BIPOC community than overt racism. Now, what's the solution, if at all, is there? Now, there's a smaller, simple answer to fixing hundreds of years of oppression, right? The answer is no. It's been going on for hundreds of years. So it's not so easy to fix, right? 
Now, racial disparities in the United States, they must be addressed through policy reform, which should be well-researched and involve community input. But before meaningful policy changes will ever pass, more people, specifically white people, need to be aware of the implicit biases they hold. And you know what, guess what? We as people of color, we need to be also aware of whatever implicit biases we hold, okay? Um, but for the sake of this conversation, white people, they need to understand the role that they play in systemic racism, right? It's not enough to be not a racist, right? Quote, unquote. We must be anti-racist. And that means understanding how you benefit from racist systems and contribute to them. And it means fighting against policies that create racial disparities. Okay? So who is ready to step up and make that change? Come on, a show of hands. Don't ever let another time 
was American soul group, The Temptations, with Just My Imagination Running Away With Me. It was written by Norman Whitfield and Barrett Strong, released on the Motown label and produced by Norman Whitfield. It features on the group's 1971 album, Sky's the Limit. When released as a single, Just My Imagination became the third temptation song to reach number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. The single held the number one position on the Billboard Pop Singles chart for two weeks in 71. Just My Imagination also held the number one spot on the Billboard R&B Singles chart for three weeks. Today, just My Imagination is considered one of the Temptations' signature songs and is notable for recalling the sounds of the group's 1960s recordings. It is also the final Temptation single to feature founding members Eddie Kendricks and Paul Williams. During the process of recording and releasing the single, Kendricks left the group to begin a solo career while the ailing Williams was forced to retire from the act for health reasons. Well, Village, it's time for this week's inspirational story, and it's called The Reflections. Here it goes. Once a dog ran into a museum filled with mirrors. The museum was unique. The walls, the ceiling, the doors, and even the floors were made of mirrors. Seeing his reflections, the dog froze in surprise in the middle of the hall. He could see a whole pack of dogs surrounding him from all sides, from above and below. The dog bared his teeth and barked all the reflections responded to it in the same way. Frightened, the dog barked frantically. The dog's reflections imitated the dog and increased it many times. The dog barked even harder, but the echo was magnified. The dog tossed from one side to another while his reflections also tossed around snapping their teeth. The following day, the museum security guards found the miserable, 
lifeless dog, surrounded by thousands of reflections of the lifeless dog. There was nobody to harm the dog. The dog died by fighting with his own reflections. That's deep. What? Now, what's the moral of the story, good people? Well, the world doesn't bring good or evil on its own. Everything that is happening around us reflects our thoughts, feelings, wishes, and actions. The world is a big mirror. So let's strike a good pose. This next song, Village, was recorded for this American singer-songwriter for her soundtrack album, I'm Breathless, which was released in 1990. This song was inspired by a certain kind of dance it was introduced to her at the Sound Factory Club in New York City by dancers Jose and Luis Extravaganza, who were from the Harlem House Ball community. Now, there's a section in the song where the singer shouts out the names of golden age Hollywood royalty while encouraging you to enjoy yourself while you're on the dance floor. And it contains an, uh, an escapism theme, I'd say, yeah. Now, there has always been great appreciation for this song since its release. And it's considered to be one of this singer's career highlights and remains one of her biggest international hits. The video was shot in black and white, and it won three MTV Video Music Awards in 1990. So there may not be a dance floor where you're at, but I know that you can get on up. And let's Vogue, the material girl herself, Donna.
know, beautiful people, no matter how many times a song has been covered, sometimes there's just nothing like the original or classic version. We've heard the saying often imitated but never duplicated. That was the Bee Gees. And how deep is your love? I remember that song as a kid. And at the time, I was mostly moved by the music. But now that I am older, those words, though, those words, those lyrics are deep. No pun intended. That question, how deep is your love? Because I really need to learn. That's like, wow, right? I might put you through some things, right? I need to know. Will you still love me enough to be there? Mm, I love that song. I mean, come through. To me, that question encourages a relationship that goes way deep beneath the surface. And I'm here for it, honey. Now, that song was released in 1977. And it was ultimately used as part of the soundtrack to the film Saturday Night Fever, cult classic, was a number three hit in the UK and Australia. And in the US, it topped the Billboard Hot 100 on December 24th, 1977, becoming the first of six consecutive US number one hits. It ended the 10-week reign of Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life, which is another classic. And it stayed in the top 10 for 17 weeks being the first song to spend 17 plus weeks in the top 10 since Chubby Checkers, The Twist. Come on, baby. Let's do The Twist. Oh, and check this out. It was also the longest song to be in the top 10 in one run. It would hold that record until End of the Road by Boys to Men. Now that single spent 19 weeks in the top 10 after the introduction of the Nielsen sound scan in 1991. And that allowed singles to achieve longer runs on the charts. Mm, mm, mm. Music royalty at its finest. Well, kings and queens, we've come to the end of another show. I do hope that the information provided will be of help to you. Remember, it is always a good idea to do your own research. Do your own research. Do your own research, no matter what the topic, especially if your life is involved. Thank you so much for tuning in this week, and I look forward to being with you all again next Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Please be sure to follow Village Mentality on Instagram at villagementality.ckm and on Facebook at Village Mentality, the podcast. You can also catch all episodes of Village Mentality on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Radio Public, and Breaker. There is a link to each episode available on both Instagram and Facebook, as well as theawakenedlounge.com backslash village hyphen mentality. Woo, it's a lot. And just remember that God has got me 
and he's got you too. Be blessed, beautiful people, and here's to brighter days.